Amen. Thank you. Thank you all for worshiping tonight, and thank you, Nicole and Kylan, for leading us tonight in our worship. Genesis 47. Hard to believe, but we only have three more weeks in the book of Genesis, and then the first Wednesday of September, we start Exodus. And I hope you'll join us for Exodus. Because Exodus is a continuation of the story of Genesis. There is no stop sign when you come to Exodus. It's, no, the story continues. It's the whole reason why God drew his people down to Egypt because his purposes for his people at this moment in history was in Egypt. You and I have to find out where's, God purpose, where's God's purposes for us. Where does God want us to accomplish and achieve his purposes in our life? If I had to title this chapter, chapter 47 of Genesis, it would be the land of Goshen. And we remember from last week that the land of Goshen was strategic. It is a district in Egypt. Egypt will protect the Israelites there, but they will also be left alone there. They will not be integrated into Egyptian culture or religion. So they will be allowed to worship Yahweh and not be influenced by all the polytheistic religion of Egypt, you see. So there's that. And now we come to this chapter where Joseph is really, as we are seeing, a type of Christ. There's so much about what Joseph does for not only the Egyptians, but for his own family and whatnot to take care of them that you see Christ in and through him. God certainly wants to do the same through us. He, he wants to work in us so that he can work through us and so that others can see him through us as well. And obviously, the one behind it all is God. Not Joseph, it's God. God is giving Joseph everything that he needs in order to lead these people effectively through a crisis situation. In fact, before we get into verse 1, I want to start here tonight. A lot of this chapter is expressing to us the wisdom of Joseph, how he expressed wisdom. And we know that wisdom comes from God. And God says in the book of James, if you lack wisdom, all you have to do is ask and I will give it to you. So the wisdom that Joseph is displaying here is coming from his relationship and his walk with God. And I want to up front share with you four ways that Joseph demonstrated wisdom here, not only in this chapter, but really throughout his time in Egypt. And the reason I want to share these tonight is because God wants us to live this way and express this kind of wisdom too, especially as his people, especially as leaders. First, Joseph demonstrated wisdom in dealing with people. It's an art to deal with people, especially people of all different kinds, right? 
He had to deal with his family. He had to deal with those like his father and all of that and his brothers. He had to deal with the Egyptians. He had to deal with Pharaoh. There, all these different people were put in Joseph's life, and you see the wisdom in how he dealt with people. God wants us to become wise in dealing with people. Secondly, Joseph demonstrated his wisdom in planning ahead. Remember, if Joseph would not have planned ahead, they would not have had the grain that they needed to sustain themselves through the seven years of famine. You and I, there's times where we need to be doing things now that's going to show up and be strategic months from now, maybe years from now, but we can't wait till that time to do it. It's got to start now. And that's how he showed wisdom. The third way Joseph demonstrated wisdom was in handling crisis, in keeping his head, in maintaining calm and composure, and being able to, again, show the people a path forward even through a very difficult and very hard time. Seven years of famine, a crisis. And finally, he demonstrated wisdom in managing resources. Managing resources. And we're going to see that tonight as well. And God wants us in our lives to demonstrate that same wisdom. Wisdom in dealing with people and planning ahead and handling crisis and in managing resources. One of the things God is going to hold us accountable for is the stewardship of our lives. The things that he has entrusted to us, what have we done with them? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So with that sort of as the backdrop or the foundation, let's dive in to Genesis 47 tonight. A couple things right off the bat. Notice something. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, and we could just keep reading and keep moving, but let's not forget something. Joseph, this guy that we were introduced to way back in chapter 37, this 17-year-old teenager from a Hebrew family who was, you know, as far as the grand scheme of things in the world, he was a nobody, right? He has direct access to the most powerful person on planet Earth at this point. He can just walk right into Pharaoh and talk to him. Now, I point that out because you and I, there's a lot of people that the world considers important and powerful and all of that that they don't even know who we are. They don't even know we exist but we have direct access to God. And we can walk right into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ anytime, and we have God's presence right there for us and with us. Let's not forget that. We might not be able to walk into some leader's, you know, palace or, or home or whatever down here on earth, but we can walk into the King of Kings and Lord of Lords presence anytime we want to. What a privilege we have. So he had direct access to Pharaoh. 
And he says to Pharaoh, my father, my brothers, their flocks, their herds, and all that they own have arrived from the land of Canaan. They're here. And remember, they brought it all. Jacob wasn't looking back. He wasn't looking for a way back. He wasn't looking for retreat. He put his hand to the plow and he kept on going. He wasn't, you know, sort of, he crossed the Rubicon. He, he wasn't going back. God wants us to be all in with where he's moving us forward and not to have some contingency plan for retreat. And that's what you see here. They are in the land of Goshen. Again, a district in Egypt. And then notice Joseph's wisdom here, dealing with people again. He, He needed to take a few of his brothers, but not all of his brothers, into an audience with Pharaoh. And notice, it says he only took five. Because Joseph wanted to make the best possible impression on Pharaoh that he could. First impressions are big, right? So I'm sure that there were some brothers that he strategically, intentionally, didn't take. He chose five to take with him purposefully into the presence of Pharaoh. Now, I say all that to say a couple things. One, who in our life would we choose to represent us well as a church, as a ministry, as Christians, you personally, who would you choose? Who would be your choice? Would you be somebody else's choice? Again, using wisdom to go, here's the person that I'm having an audience with. Who is it that I need to take with me in order for things to go well? That is wisdom. That is wisdom in handling people and handling situations. And Joseph is showing that here in this passage. Pharaoh said to Joseph's brothers, what is your occupation? And Joseph knew because he knew Pharaoh, because he had a relationship with Pharaoh. He knew the questions that Pharaoh would ask. He knew what inquiries Pharaoh would make. And I'm sure he talked to these five brothers about that even before they went in. He let them know ahead of time what they could expect and how they were to conduct themselves when they went into the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, what is your occupation? By the way, literally, what is it that occupies you? Now, I want to stop here because we can, we can make a practical application here. An occupation, then, is not just how we make a living. We all have different ways here, even, as Christians, that we make a living. But there's a difference between what we do to make a living and, say, earn a paycheck, even, and what occupies us. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And all of us can have different occupations. Obviously, we all aren't called to be in ministry. We could call to be in a, in a secular position or whatever. That's great. That's fine, because God wants his people all over the place. 
to be able to be a light and to be salt. But what is it that occupies us? What is it that gets our heart pumping? What, what is it that, that gets us up in the morning and, and, and creates a sense of expectation and anticipation? Do we have something from the Lord like that? We all should. What is it that consumes us? What is it that captivates us? What is it that excites us and that we have a passion for and a passion about? That's really, in essence, what this word means. Now, obviously, we understand it as, what do you do to make a living? Notice what they say to Pharaoh. Your servants. I think, again, Joseph gave them insight into some things that they should say. And they say, hey, Pharaoh, we just want you to know, we're here to serve you. We're your servants. And your servants take care of flocks, just as our ancestors did. And we know, obviously, from previous passages that the Egyptians looked down on this. This was disgusting to them to take care of animals, right? We'll get to that a little bit more. But the point I want to make is that the word service here speaks about worshiping God through the service that I'm doing. That's another way that you and I worship God is through our service. And so notice even here, they can be serving Pharaoh, but serving God through serving Pharaoh. Again, going back to all of you, what you do maybe in the world or out there in the world or whatever, you're still serving God. You're God's servant wherever you are and whoever you're, you're serving because ultimately we're all servants of God wherever we are, you see. And they understood that concept. Joseph understood that concept. I'm in Egypt, but I'm the servant of Yahweh. But I'm serving Yahweh by serving Pharaoh, right? Daniel understood that. I'm in Babylon, but I'm serving Yahweh by serving Nebuchadnezzar. God wants us to get that concept. And the other thing here is that we all should be serving. Serving. Servanthood is essential and foundational to walking with God. God wants all of us to be serving. And again, serving isn't just what we do here at church and, and reducing service to, to some of the things that we're involved in, serving God is a mindset. S serving God is something that we do the moment our eyes open in the morning. And we literally, in a sense, we put that towel around us like Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet. And we put that towel around us. We're like, Jesus, here I am all day. I'm your servant. Whatever you have for me today, I am here today to serve you in whatever capacity you are asking me to serve. That's the heart of a servant. And that's what God wants us all to come to. They then said to Pharaoh, verse 4, we have come to live as temporary residents, sojourners, pilgrims, in the land. And we should all feel that way again. We're... This is not our permanent home. We're just passing through to our permanent homeland. 
But then notice this. There's no pasture for your servants' flocks because the famine is severe. Now, God wants to emphasize this for effect. This is the first of three times this phrase or a similar phrase is used in this chapter alone. Look at the phrase in verse 4, the famine is severe. Then go over to verse 13. You'll see in the middle of this verse, the famine was very severe. Then if you go over to verse 20, towards the end of that verse, the famine was severe. Why is God emphasizing the severity of the famine? Because God wants us to understand through this many thousands of years later, yes, there will be times where he allows us, as he did his people here, to go through severe, difficult, hard circumstances. It's not easy. But God also wants us to understand, based on even our worship tonight, God will get us through because God's faithful. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. And he can bring us through the most difficult, hard, and burdensome, you know, seasons of our life. We're not immune from going through severe things. But God says, just like we've been learning in Isaiah, when you pass through the deep waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the flooded streams, I'll be with you. When you go through the raging fires, I will bring you through. Not if, when. And God says, I will get you through it. Let me choose my way of getting you through it and how long it lasts, but I'll get you through it, you see. So that's why I think it's emphasized so much at the end of the book of Genesis, how severe the famine was. Because we know. God's people got through. In fact, we're going to see tonight that God, in a very intentional way, was showing that he takes care of his people more than he does the others. It's not that he doesn't take care of them. It's not that the Egyptians didn't make it through either. They did because of Joseph and the wisdom that God gave Joseph. But his people actually even made it through even better. We're going to see that in just a moment. All right, so let's pick it up. He says at the end of verse 4, so now please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you, so settle your father and your brothers in the best region of the land. And notice this is repeated down in verse 11, the best, because Joseph is able to give them the best and settle them in the best region, because that's what Pharaoh said. And Pharaoh's kindness here to Joseph, to his family, I think is a reflection of the kindness that Joseph showed to Pharaoh and the relationship that he had and the respect that Pharaoh had for Joseph that was built up over time. You and I, again, that's wisdom, you see. That's wisdom. Creating an environment around us where even those that don't know our God respect us enough that they're willing to cooperate with us and, and even sometimes be used by God to be a blessing. In fact, I believe the Lord worked in Pharaoh's heart and used him to take care of Jacob and his family while they were 
in Egypt. Remember, the Bible says in a general principle way, when a man's ways or a woman's ways please the Lord, he makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. You see that fleshed out here. Pharaoh was not a believer in Yahweh, but Pharaoh was blessing the people of God. And primarily, it was because of the relationship that he had with Joseph. He so admired and respected and had esteem for Joseph that he wanted to bless Joseph's family. And you know that to be true. If you really care about somebody, if you, if you really love somebody, then you not only love them and care about them, but you love and care about everyone who's connected to them because you know that they're precious to them and that they're part of them. That's what's going on here even from Pharaoh's perspective. He asked them to settle, dwell, remain in this land. And then he says this, the end of verse 6, Pharaoh. If you know of any highly capable men among them, all these people that you brought down here, put them in charge of my livestock. Wow. I'll even give them some leadership positions as far as managing, again, all these resources of cattle and livestock and my herds and all of this. Now, I want to go back to this word capable because we, we can talk about this for a minute and apply this to us. God is also looking for capable servants in his kingdom as well. What does that mean? It means resourceful. There's two kinds of people in the world, resourceful people and draining people. God doesn't want us to be a drain all the time. He wants us to be resourceful. And here's what it means to be resourceful. That when God entrusts resources or entrusts a ministry or entrusts something to us, listen, we don't just maintain it. We maximize it. We build it. We grow it. We make it better and better. God is looking for the same type of people in his kingdom. That's why, can I tell you, I am always trying to go to our leaders and say, leaders, don't overextend yourself. Don't get yourself involved in too much. Narrow the focus of what you're doing, because here's why. God not only expects you to maintain what you got, he expects you to maximize it. That takes continual attention. It takes continual attention to keep making something better, to, to not be satisfied that I've taken this as far as I can. No, we've always got to keep tweaking and making adjustments and, and, and giving things attention because we always want to keep making it better. We want to maximize it. God is looking for those kind of people in his churches, in his kingdom, in the world today, who not only can he hand things off to or things can be handed to them that they simply maintain, but that they maximize, they grow it. They continually make it better. And that's why you and I can only do a few things to that level. Because otherwise, here's what ends up happening. We end up then just maintaining most of what we're trying to do and maybe have enough energy and effort to maybe maximize something very small because you can't maximize multiple things at the same time. It takes too much energy and effort and attention and blood, sweat, and tears to do that. 
Then Joseph brought in his father, Jacob, and presented him before Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how long have you lived? Jacob said to Pharaoh, all the years of my travels are 130. All the years of my life have been few and painful. First of all, you and I, Jacob, 130 and you're telling me you've lived a short life? Well, for us, that's true. 130 years would be great. But remember, compared to his grandfather, 175 years when he died, and his father Isaac, who died when he was 180, yeah, he has lived a lot less, right? All the years of my life have been few and painful. The years of my travels are not as long as those of my ancestors. That's true. And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Now, say what you want to about Jacob. And we all know, we've talked about Jacob's shortcomings and faults and all of that. Here's one thing I want to commend Jacob for. Every time you see Jacob in the book of Genesis, when he meets somebody or greets somebody, you know what he does? He brings a blessing. And I think God wants us to do the same thing. When we go through life and we meet people and we greet people, God wants us as his people to bring blessings to people. Not curses, blessings. And Jacob, you always see him blessing other people. May we be a blessing to others. May we know how blessed we are and then in turn bless others. So Joseph settled his father, established his father and his brothers in the land, gave them territory. Again, type of Christ. Christ wants to establish his people and settle us, give us stability and security. And then Christ will give us territory, resources to manage. He will give us his very best, the best region of the land of Ramses, just as Pharaoh had commanded. Verse 12, Joseph also provided food for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household according to the number of their children. The word provided means to support, meaning strengthening in order to sustain. Again, a type of Christ. Christ is our ultimate provider. He supports us by strengthening us so that we can sustain ourselves over the long haul. He does it physically, he does it emotionally, and he does it spiritually. And he wants us to be his hands and feet to do the same thing to others. Not only to bless others, but to provide for others to support them. Who does God want us to support in our lives? Who does God want us to come alongside of and strengthen in order to sustain and keep them going? These are the things God wants his servants to consider. Then we come to verse 13, and I'm not going to take a lot of time here because now from verse 13, really down through verse 25, you, you have the policies that Joseph put into place of how to manage this crisis, this famine. Now, I do want to say a couple things here. Notice again, the famine was very severe and there was no food in the land. So notice what Joseph does. He never gives the people something for nothing. <laughs> Joseph isn't about a welfare state. Joseph says, if you're going to get something from me to sustain you and support you, you're going to have to put some skin in the game. You're not going to get anything from me for nothing. There's always going to be something that you're going to have to give to me. So notice, 
Joseph collected all the money, verse 14, that could be found in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, as payment for the grain they were buying. Well, at the end of verse 15, the money runs out. So then Joseph says, well, if your money's gone, then bring me your livestock. Br bring me something, but you're not going to get grain. You're not going to get fed if you don't bring me something. This was Joseph's policy, right? Well, then the livestock ran out. And when that was over, they come to him in verse 18 and basically in 19 say, look, we're going to die. We've run out of money. We've run out of, you know, livestock and, and all of that, but we're going to starve. So Joseph's plan is this. Notice what he does in verse 20. He buys all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. Basically, now they need to give the government, if you will, their land. So that the government now, Egypt, Pharaoh, owns all the land of all the people, right? Joseph says, verse 23, since I bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here's seed, you cultivate the land. Oh, and by the way, after it's all cultivated, you got to give one-fifth back to Pharaoh, 20%. In fact, this was a statute that Joseph made in verse 26 that belongs to Egypt throughout their dynasties, that one-fifth of all that the people got from their land would go back to Pharaoh or to the Egyptian leader. Joseph set all that up. Not Pharaoh, Joseph. That's how he managed all this, right? A couple things. Were the people upset? No. Notice what the people said to Joseph in verse 25. You have saved our lives. You are showing us favor, grace, and graciousness. Therefore, we will be Pharaoh's servants. Hey, Joseph, if it wouldn't be for you, none of us would have gotten through this. They even recognized. They weren't upset that they had, in a sense, had to give up everything. They were still alive. They still had food to eat. And Joseph wasn't going to give them something for nothing. They always had to give something for what they were going to get in return. Now, the point I want to make is this. Notice something unbelievably contrasting in this. Every Egyptian then, at this point, owns no land, right? They had to give their land and give up their land to Pharaoh, right? But then come with me to verse 27. Israel, Jacob, settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and notice what the Bible says. They owned the land there. The people of God never had to give up their land. They owned that land. So now think of this. The people of God own their own land while the Egyptians, none of them do. And God in his providence is showing, I can get my people through. Yes, I will get the Egyptians through, and they will survive this great famine, and they will come out the other side. But I'm going to especially take care of my people, and they're going to have blessings that even the Egyptians don't have because they're mine. They're mine. And then I want to end with this, these last couple of verses of the chapter. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt, verse 28, 17 years. The years of Jacob's life then were 147 in all. The time for Israel to die approached. So he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and show me kindness and faithfulness. Basically, it was a way to pledge 
right? And notice, who's in charge now of, in a sense, Jacob's affairs? Not Reuben, the oldest. He gave up that right we're going to see next week. Jacob wanted Joseph to be the one who was in charge of his last affairs, right? The executor, if you will. And Jacob's doing a couple things here. First of all, he's showing his confidence in death as much as he showed confidence in life. Yes, it wavered at times, but ultimately what he's doing here now is he's setting himself up to die and to die well. And he's showing that confidence at the end of his life. I love Philippians 1.6. We can be confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in us will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You and I can be confident all the way through our life, and especially at the end, we got to show the same confidence as we're getting ready to go out of here as we've shown all the way through our life. Why? Because our death and how we die and what we do around our death can be one of the greatest testimonies and evidences of our faith that we will ever show on this earth to others. And you see that here. Notice he says in verse 29, do not bury me in Egypt. When I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And Joseph said, I will do as you say. Now, first of all, look at verse 30 for a moment. This is a great description of death. First of all, he describes death as rest. And the Bible does. says, you know what? When we die as Christians, oh, man, it's just going to be like we can take the biggest breath because we have laid down this old flesh and we have said goodbye to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it's rest. It is rest like you can't imagine rest. The second thing you see here is it's rest, it's reunion. Notice he says, when I rest with my fathers, I know I'm going to be reunited with those that I love and that I know, I know God's going to bring us back together again. And notice something else. He knows this is immediate. He's not waiting to be buried back in Canaan to rest and be reunited, that's going to happen the second that he dies. The reason he wants to be buried back in Canaan is he wants the symbolism of his burial in the land of Canaan to stand as a testimony to his hope in the promises of God. He wants his funeral to be a testimony. He wants his burial to be a testimony of his faith, a, a faith that he's saying, I trust in my God that God's going to bring us all back to this land one day. And by you burying me there, I'm showing everyone around me that I'm trusting in my God to do what he promised to do. Jacob's desire was that his funeral would be a clear witness of his faith in God. Jacob said, verse 31, swear to me that you will do so. So Joseph gave him his word. Israel then bowed down at the head of his bed. Last point. You know, as Christians, we put a lot of energy and effort into so many things throughout our life. And yet, because I'm a pastor, obviously, and as you heard Sunday, I'm with people at the end of their life, 
and dealing with funerals and memorials and all that, what I have found and even talking to, a lot of Christians put no thought, forethought, no planning, no any kind of, you know, into their own memorial service or funeral. Now, maybe that's because, you know, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. I get that. But here's what we've got to understand. Our funeral, our memorial service is one of the greatest evidences of our faith and witnesses of our faith that we will have as we leave this earth. And I just want to encourage you as your pastor, take some time to put some thought into what kind of service, what kind of memorial, what kind of a funeral you want to have. And do it ahead of time. Wisdom, planning ahead. I will tell you this. I've already started. I've already started thinking through what I want my service and all of that to look like. Because I want my ending to be an evidence and testimony of my faith in my Lord. And I want to encourage all of us, be like Jacob here. Jacob says, I want to go out. And when I go out, I want my death to be as clear a witness and testimony for my God as my life was at times. And I think that that's a great and very wise thing that we see here in this chapter. Because we just will never know how God can use the way we die, how we die, with the faith that we die with, and what our service looks like to not only strengthen believers, but maybe bring other people into the kingdom. Something to think about. The land of Goshen. It was severe, but God got his people through. God can get you through too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that even in the midst of a very severe famine, Lord, you were encouraging your people. You were strengthening your people. You, you were using Joseph to lead many, many people through a crisis situation. And God, that's maybe what you call us to do, to not just follow others, but to be leaders, to use your wisdom, God, to manage resources and to deal with people and to plan ahead and to, to deal and handle crises in our life. God, it's a way that as we move through life that we again show our faith and our trust in you. It's a way, Lord, that we can be a testimony and a witness to you throughout our life. But, Lord, you also have reminded us here tonight as Jacob begins to think about how short of a time he has here on this earth that he wants his death and his memorial service and his funeral to be a witness and evidence of his faith in you as well. And, God, may we desire that as well. May we put some thought and attention and effort and planning into what we want our service, our memorial, our funeral to look like. And we ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.